if you were speaking directly to a parent that is in that really kind of scared, frozen, I don't know what to do state that's listening to this, if you could share one thing with them that is the most important from your own experience, what would it be? So I'm imagining that that parent feels like they've already failed, that they've got nothing to offer, and that is doomed. The situation is doomed. And so my response would be that you are your best asset. You are your team's best asset. The part of you that you think sucks and doesn't know enough, that is the part your team needs. The very part that you are apologizing for and feeling guilty about, that's who your team needs. Welcome to The Reframe, from the couch to the conversation where we dive deep into the human experience of healing and transformation, giving you the knowledge, skills, and resources to not only manage the increasing stress of the world, but center you in your sense of self so you can be the change you want to see in the world. I am your host, Rebecca Molman, trauma therapist turned coach. Teenage years are a pivotal time in developing self-identity and figuring out how you're going to navigate life. It is a rocky rite of passage we have all experienced. However, the landscape for teens today is drastically different and causing new challenges for parents that just simply were not there when we were teens. Social media, screens, a spike in teen mental health challenges, and the fallout of the pandemic are all contributing to parents feeling lost, ill-equipped, and frustrated to say the least. In today's episode, we are joined by Jenny Wing, who has 20 years under her belt as a licensed clinical psychologist and coach to address practical strategies and share valuable insight around this topic. She is board certified in DBT and specializes in the treatment of trauma and high emotion dysregulation among teens, as well as first responders and medical professionals. There is so much to cover today, so let's dive in. Well, Jenny, it's absolute wonderful pleasure to have you here today, and I've really been looking forward to this conversation um, yeah, since we chatted last. Yeah. It's great to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you share just a little bit about yourself and um, what you do and how you've gotten to where you're at today? Absolutely. Um, so I am a psychologist by training. I've been working in the field for over 20 years now, and I've really been tacking back and forth over the last 20 years between prevention, education, and treatment and actual clinical work. And so the last 10 years has really been focused primarily on doing clinical work with people struggling with trauma. And what I have found is that a lot of adults who are struggling with trauma, the way it plays out in their lives is it deeply impacts their relationships with their kids and their parent. And so a lot of the work that I had been doing ended up centering a lot around parenting a lot around helping adults increase their own emotion regulation skills. So doing a lot of dialectical behavioral therapy and, you know, it, and through that came to start working with teens directly. I had always done education with young adults and teens going way back at the very beginning. So 
in working with teens and seeing that there's this pervasive issue where parents and teens desperately want to find one another and they can't. And it's almost in their desperation to find one another that they miss each other. And it, so in my early days, I was a university administrator in college mental health. And I had an experience where we unfortunately had a loss on campus of a student and a medical issue, very unexpected. And the parents had to come that weekend to pick up their son's belongings. And I had to accompany the mom to the door. And what I remember so clearly is the sound of her cry when she came into his room and smelled his pillow. She kind of held it together until that moment. And when I heard her cry, I thought to myself, I don't ever want to hear another mom cry. So it really became a mission for me 20 years ago to focus on addressing the prevention of loss, you know, where possible, especially when it comes to parents and their relationship with their kids. Um, so that has always been etched in my mind and very much shapes, you know, how I do my work. My parents raised me very much to be kind of focused on contributing to the greater good and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it all kind of fits together into this moment of reaching out and trying to reach parents before it gets so bad that it, they, they come to the therapy office. Mm -hmm. Well, when you're looking at the relationships between parents and teenagers, what are you seeing that is the, the thing that is walking in the door the most? that people are having the most hard time or struggle with? Um, the thing that parents struggle with is I think they really underestimate the amount of pressure our teens are under because parents very much have this idea of thinking back to our own adolescence. Uh -huh. And so then we think, well, geez, what was, what was the big deal back then? Like I remember back then I was stressed out in that moment, but compared to my adulthood now, that was nothing. So when parents are encountering now teens who are having problems getting to school, teens who are unwilling to get homework assignments done, who are getting the homework assignment done and doing everything but submitting it, like these battles over things that parents never thought they would ever find themselves arguing with their teens about because when they were teens, they never thought they would ever argue with their parents about it. I mean, when you were a teen and when I was a teen, it wasn't even in the realm of possibility to not go to school. What are you talking about? You know, that's like unheard of. And it, this issue of school refusal tends to be the first piece that really gets parents' attention and frustration. And that's what brings them through the door. So what's different then? What's changed to where that is a dynamic that the teens are struggling with now, where it wasn't really, like you're saying, it wasn't an option. It didn't even cross my mind that that was going to be an option to not go to school or not do the homework. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly you know, when, when all it started, but it became real noticeable to me with the pandemic and life after the pandemic. As soon as 
education remotely became an option. This opened up a possibility for teens who struggle with social anxiety to seek shelter in the, in the comfort of that distance. But it's a double-edged sword because as much as kids with social anxiety try to avoid those interactions, they still very much need them. So that isolation still causes significant mental health issues. And so just looking at the data from 2020, 2021, mm-hmm. the rates of teens reporting seriously contemplating suicide was something like one, one out of five. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's, that's just unbelievable to me to think that you know, we've got 15 to 17-year-olds, 13 to 19-year-olds out there who really think that death is a better option. And most certainly an epidemic of that in itself. And I, I'm glad that you brought that up because I think it's something that is important to talk about and to recognize that there is the anxiety, the depression, the suicide ideation, the suicide attempts have skyrocketed, skyrocketed. Like just personally, I know too many teens that that was a realistic option for them. Whether they follow through with it or not, it's still the to be in a state to that their little bodies are di- trying to digest all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was hard even seeing with my own daughter, her struggles. With and as a family, we struggled deeply with it. And this was knowing everything that I know as a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thankfully we got through that crisis time And so the more recent inspiration for me in the last three years has really been remembering how lost I felt, even knowing everything that I know in trying to help my daughter and getting through the crisis and really making a promise that I would try to help other parents have available to them the same kind of information I had and to help other parents not feel as alone, because I think that was the hardest part was the isolation and just the other, like, where, where do you even begin to talk about the fact that your teen is struggling? I have two questions. Where is one, where is the disconnect? And then if you could be for a minute, the teenager and translate talking to a parent what would the teenager desperately be wanting to try to say that they're not finding the words for? They would say something like, when I don't get stuff done, it's not, it's not about you. When I don't want to go to school, it's not because I'm trying to make you mad. When I have a hard time getting out of bed, it's because I feel really depressed. And it's not because I'm lazy. And I actually feel like I should be able to get out of bed. Everyone else gets out of bed. What's my problem? Right? So you are mad at me. Well, I'm just 20 times more mad at myself than you could ever be. And so actually I hate myself. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not quite sure where I fit in. I mean, so these are all the kinds of things that they would definitely be saying. Which as a parent, not having the skills as even like a clinical therapist, just trying to stumble through the process. I think there's a natural tendency to be afraid and push back and 
try to not only have them fit into the box that you expect them to perform the way they you expect them to perform, but then also there is a very genuine, almost freeze response of like, I don't know what to do. And then that creates even more distance, just puts fuel to the fire with that relationship. Definitely. And I think there's a, a kind of cultural pressure that parents are supposed to have the answers. <laughs> and that if we don't have the answers, then that, that is an automatic marker that we failed or that we're about to fail. And I think that's part of what creates the freeze response. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what drives parents more than towards doubling down on the things they're certain of. Mm -hmm. And and then some of the problem comes around exactly that. Hmm. Which makes sense. So how, how would you go about coaching a parent who is in that state? Someone that's feels really frozen, really, they don't have the tools. They really do want to help. They're super frustrated and probably overwhelmed themselves. Yes. What can Um, we do as parents? There is a great skill they use in dialectical behavioral therapy called cope ahead, where it is a rehearsal skill, basically, where you visualize your team coming to you with the worst news, Mm. triggering you in whatever way that they tend to trigger you. Imagine it, visualize yourself getting triggered, visualize your distress going up, and then visualize yourself making use of some techniques such as pace breathing, so extending your exhale, making a decision, visualizing that you're going to stop and take a break and say, I'll be right back in in a couple minutes, whatever that is, but to visualize that all the way through your distress coming back down and then following that visualization to do some uh, continued pace breathing for about five minutes and to rehearse that every night as you're falling asleep. Um, I actually did this with one of my current clients and she reported back recently. She's like, oh my gosh, it was so much easier because it was like already there. And the research is really robust that that kind of visualization and imaginal rehearsal does a lot to enhance performance across the board, Mm -hmm. you know. And so whether it's sports or academics, so it is in parenting too. So that's what I encourage people to do is to really... Just immerse yourself in the feeling of that, that dread, you know, and terror and working through it. it would you encourage the, the parent and the teen to maybe rehearse together before something? Um, you know, I, I encourage the parent to do as much as they can on their own mm-hmm. because teens got a lot going on as it is, and navigating the relationship, just armed with the new knowledge that you have as a parent is enough to mm-hmm. shift the dynamic. You, you don't need to get that formal in it necessarily. Now, if the teen is struggling and they have a situation where they're imagining freezing before a test, now a parent can always go through the go through this skill with the parent or with the teen and say, you know what I do when I get really nervous about something and then practice it together. That way, what I encourage parents and teens to do is to actually come up with a code word that they use for when things are really starting to go sideways and they know they're getting dysregulated and it's going to go bad. Like they can't even explain why or what or how. They just know the conversation needs to stop. And so I have 
parenting diets come up with like a silly word, you know, like coconuts. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's just the word. Like that means, okay, communication is no longer productive and we're stepping back. So that's one way that parents and teens can reverse that together. Mm -hmm. And set up kind of protocols to intervene before it gets into Mm -hmm. a destructive behaviors on the parent side or the teen side. Yes. Yeah. 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 A lot of us are parents and I can just hear the, a little bit older generation saying, but what the kids got to go to school. They've got to like toughen up. They've got to do this stuff. They're not going to succeed in life. And there is a lot of fear in that. And there's a heavy Mm -hmm. pushing with that. Mm -hmm. And then the, what I've seen is the parent or caregiver gets defeated, like feels absolutely defeated and then rejects. Mm -hmm. Not consciously, but their face rejects. Rejects the, the teen or the the behavior. The behavior, so the, yeah. 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 And a real pushback, like this is unacceptable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's it's really interesting when I encounter parents like that because they'll say, you know, it is really important. And so I'll say, Okay, what have you been doing? Well, I've been, and they'll describe yelling at them and and all kinds of things and starting an hour before and going in every five minutes. And and it's amazing that the incantations people will go through to to do this for their kids. Um, And then what I'll ask them is, and has it worked? And they'll say no. And so, you know, my answer always is, if your way was going to work in and so if your kid isn't getting out the door to school, then, and your way is not yielding the outcome that you want, then maybe you're going to have to detour and change how you're looking at this. And if it will actually yield your son or daughter getting to school, are you willing to change? And oftentimes they are. And sometimes the, the shift is really subtle. In one situation, or a couple of situations, that the shift was as subtle as saying to the teen, we're not fighting with you anymore. It was saying to the teen, okay, we're going to come in an hour before to wake you up. You know what time you need to leave to get to school on time. We have your phone. You will get your phone back when you head out the door for school. And then... Now, this is teens with chronic, chronic issues and parents that that's not going to work. So they did it. Did it once. The teen's like, you're not going to do that. Oh, they did it. Teen got out the door, made it on time. Happens again, tested again. And then by the second week, the teen's on his own, getting up, you know, going to school. And there's no increased yelling. It, there's no increased discipline. It's just focused attention of parents saying, okay, we are going to do our best to help block potential paths of distraction. And we're going to leave our team the room to then make a choice. And so we will stand back, we'll block the areas of avoidance, and we'll watch and we'll wait and see. And then we see what they do. And based on that, we move forward. Oftentimes, when you give teens that space and you arrange blocking the right distractions, you can get that movement forward. Hmm. 
And I think that's something that we never had to do when you're at the very beginning. You're like, well, why is it when we look back on our childhood or like our teenage years, it's one of the biggest differences is the screens, is the distraction, the short, literally shorter attention span. Can you talk a little bit about that as well as the dopamine dump on the back end or of the short? I I don't know. I know I'm not saying this like smoothly, but the... What happens to dopamine with with the impact of the stimulus? Well, a couple of things. I mean, think about your own experience as a parent and how radically different would it be for you if you knew that cable and internet and everything shut off at 1.30 because late night TV ended and it was just white noise and the American anthem, the national anthem comes on and, and the American flag goes up and that's it, you know, because back in when I was a kid, that was it. And culturally, nothing happened overnight unless you were really specifically getting into trouble or working at night shift or whatever. But there was nothing to do, per se. And parents didn't have to work to set that boundary. That is a boundary that parents have to fight hard for now, that to unplug. There's no unplugging now. There's no cultural support for unplugging. Mm. I mean, how different would your life be if you knew that at 1130, you know, late TV came on and after that, that was it. Wouldn't matter if your kid wanted to stay up all night. There was nothing to do. (laughs) Yes. Right? It, it takes the fight away. But now it becomes something where parents become the gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. And now as gatekeeper, then they become the thing pushed up against. And that, that adds a layer of pressure for parents that baby boomers didn't have to do. Well, and that those devices also are a tether for and abridged for those social connections and social communication. It almost has this layer for the parent of, I'm not just taking a distraction away. The kid's response is, no, you're taking my entire life away. Yes. And that is a very tricky thing for parents. And sometimes parents struggle with following through on a consequence because the team will say, but that's my only safety net. Or they'll say, they'll pull the, you know, I'm on the phone with my friend who's in crisis and they need me right now and you're rushing me. And the reality is when parents push through nonetheless and work and say, okay, you take five more minutes, but then you got to wrap up and follow through, teens learn that people... Rarely are things a life and death matter Mm. with being online. And so teaching teens how to put that pause, that self-administered pause is tough. It's tough. And parents, I think it's hard for parents to do themselves. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times parents' own relationship with technology is problematic and Kids are mimicking what they see their parents doing. And a lot of times, you know, that parents resort to because of their own burnout. And this became, I think, especially the case through the pandemic. Parents relied on technology to help contain their kids and entertain them. 
as a way to just get a chance to catch their own breath. Um, and through the pandemic, tech became just such much more woven into everyday life. So we're not in the time anymore where we can just say, okay, you can't have social media until you're 15. That comes with really serious implications for kids now. It puts them at a serious disadvantage in terms of being able to navigate with other kids in that arena. And I have worked with enough kids who have had the experience of not having and like this really extreme, like no access mm -hmm. until, and it, it doesn't serve them as really? well as it's not as clean as parents would like to think. It's an option, but it is not the silver bullet that solves everything. It, it comes with its own complications and it does put your team somewhat in a one down position in terms of being able to play the social game in engaging with their peers and, and sort of getting into that jockeying for position. That's really interesting to hear because my head, my head is <laughs> like, well, you just can't be on social media. But I like that you pointed out that that is how they are engaging. Like that is the social component with so much distance that's been kind of infused into the culture at this point. I, I guess the first question is, how do you make it safe? Oh, man, the more communication and you know, collaborative use of things like watching YouTube together is something that I encourage families to do, like figure out what your kid is interested in watching on YouTube and see if you can get interested in it too. Um, or you can find things on YouTube, just get familiar with the tech that they're using, get on TikTok, get on Discord, try to understand what that is. Because I really truly think that's the only way parents are gonna understand what their, what their teen's experience of that media is. Instead and of just, Hard lining it. Yes. Yes. Because then you can have a conversation. And in that conversation, you can have some decision making process around at what point does your relationship with this particular thing, TikTok, Facebook, whatever, start becoming a problem. Mm -hmm. And then you start thinking about safety online. And these kids are getting thankfully in the schools are getting a lot of training on how to stay safe online. It doesn't change the fact that they can know the rules and still take risks. You know, that, that is a reality. And the only thing that I see as the ultimate remedy and ultimate safety net is the open, connected, open communication between parent and team. That is the parent's best shot, is hearing it from the team themselves. It, the visual that just kind of came up for me is that the teen has things that they're standing firmly behind, positions that they're taking. The parent has different valued positions that they're taking. And I wonder if the magic might be in recognizing we're going to agree to disagree on these points, and this isn't going to be the the core of all of our conversations and how can we find connection in other conversation topics or ways? That is so beautiful. And that is true. And I love the visual because that is, that 
you just captured exactly what the problem is. For parents, they fail to understand that this is a second subjectivity with a whole separate experience and set of values. And it isn't just about instructing and telling them what to do. Gen Xers had this assumption that why adolescence was hard for us was because there was this kind of shared benign neglect among the baby boomers towards, towards mm -hmm. their kids. That wasn't the only thing. And so, you know, baby, so Gen Xers, as a result, we were like, okay, we're just going to put all our attention on the kids. So then we assume, oh, our kids aren't going to have any problems, right? They're going to go into their teen years. And unlike us, they have parents who want to guide them. So we'll guide them and then they'll be, they'll, they'll have a much easier time. But the problem is adolescence is exactly that time that this second subjectivity is getting built. Mm. And now you've got two people. And when you realize that you have two people, that's the thing that parents have the hardest time with is acknowledging that separate entity of the other person that their child is becoming. Yes, absolutely. Kind of mind blown for a minute because there's it's because they're physically still there in the house. It's yeah. not like they went off to college, but this process starts in teenage years. So you're walking around in the same household with someone who the whole reason for that adolescent time frame is to solidify a more substantial identity, which requires separation from an almost dichotomized separation from the parent. Yeah, because the thing about identity, the first way that we tend to know who we are is by knowing who we're not. Mm. I'm not this. I don't like this. I don't like that person. I didn't want to marry that person. You know, it, all of those kinds of things have a role in saying who we are. Oh, I'm like mom and dad, or I'm not like them this way. Or I am like them this way. As a family, this is what we believe in. All of those things that we train and teach our kids from like zero to 10, mm -hmm. 10 plus, they go and test out for themselves and see how right we were. You know, they're like, okay, you said I'm lovable. We're going to go out and see how lovable we are. And then they're hanging out with their friends and they're like, wait a minute, this group just excluded me. And that group is talking about me and this group, what are you talking about? I'm lovable. And then they realize that there are all different ways that people can see one another. And that is totally arbitrary sometimes and can be completely disconnected from what you do or what you actually care about. What a horrifying moment for teens when they realize that, you know, and, and in the meantime, mom and dad are at home or parents are at home saying, oh, we love you. And that's that's all you need is our love. And that's, you know, you'll be great. Ooh, no, <laughs> that, I mean, it's important. It's critical. Mm -hmm. Um, and it becomes especially critical given what teens are trying to do, but it certainly doesn't take away that adolescence is a rite of passage. Mm. It, ju it just is. You know, becoming an adult, becoming a human being who says, I believe this, I stand for this, I consume this, I produce this waste, this is what I do, that that's a big deal. And what it takes to get to that spot 
takes a lot of iterations of pushing up against people and saying, God, I tried it this way and that didn't work out so well. And, you know, through so many, like thousands of interactions like that, so many of them outside of awareness, even that learning is happening. And in that process, that second, you know, whole person emerges. Hmm. Is there a way that we can make it easier for them? And because I, I think there's this tendency of just literally stumbling through parenthood that we never got the user's guide to. <laughs> Is there a way that we can make that process a little bit more graceful for them, also for us? For parents or for teens? For yeah, both? Both. Both. Um, I think, I, you know, I, I have this fantasy where parents could sit down with their kids at about 10 or 11 and say, Okay, little Johnny, now life's about to change. We're, we're heading into an interesting period and your world's getting bigger. You're growing up. You're figuring out what it means to start doing this whole grown up and figuring out what you want and what you want to be. And we're going to figure it out together. And guess what? There aren't any clear answers. There are some clear answers, but... There's no one who will tell you exactly what to do that will guarantee you happiness and things feeling good. That is a process. Everything's a process. So if, if adults can radically accept that life is a process, right, and that there isn't a lot that we do control, and actually where we get most mixed up is we try to control what we can't and don't control what we could. Um, the more we can do that, the grace kind of falls from there. It, it all falls into place. Like we set the tone. So our self-compassion, our radical acceptance for just how profoundly human this experience is and what a humbling thing to say, we're going to bring life into this world and then try to, you know, create the conditions so that they can go forth and do what that's what an audacious thing to claim and to, and to see what happened over the pandemic really i think was so sobering for, for so many because it just really highlighted the emperor has no clothes you know all of these things that we thought were so solid no not so solid mm -hmm. So it's clear more and more our society, we're needing people who can tolerate things being quite gray. There isn't a lot that's black and white in life. And that's what our teams are moving into, a world of increased complexity. And they're building an identity in an increasingly complex world where there are more and more nuanced ways you can express your identity. And they're needing our help with that. They need us to also be nuanced. When our back gets up and our fight or flight goes off because we think our team is in crisis, we, you know, it's, I say to folks, you know, we, we have this myth, right, that people will rise to the occasion. We don't rise to the occasion. We fall to the level of our training. And so we resort to what we know best. And so we go to clarity. And that's when think people are like, just go to, you have one job, go to school. That's it. We don't ask you to do anything. 
if you knew what I had to do when I was your, you know, like the whole litany that can go on. And so that's what they resort to, which is exactly what then escalates the identity crisis and emotion dysregulation in the team, which then just creates more distress for the parent because they're like, what are you, what is going on? Don't you respect me? Don't you hear what I'm telling you? So then they make it about a respect thing. And the teen is like, what are you talking about? I, I, I'm just having a hard time getting to school. <laughs> and so, and I'm sitting here watching and I'm like, oh my God, I have to say something. Right. And this, so that really is what has brought me to do this work mm-hmm. is because I can't stand when the answer is right there and people are in so much pain. Right. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh my God. So and I'm like, someone must be saying it. And I'm looking around and people are like, yeah, okay, people are saying it. But so I was like, okay, I'm going to start saying it then. And then people started responding and I'm like, okay, so I'll keep saying it. So I'm going to keep saying it as long as people <laughs> respond, you know? Um, and as long as there are kids who are hurting and that's, that's pretty constant. Yes. Well, can you tell a little bit more about how the work that you do is really creating a bridge for that relationship between the teen and the parent and how you've put that together to assist this pretty significant transition and problem? Well, you know, I was working with a consultant who said, you know, you should go on social media. And I was never really a big social media person. And so I thought, all right, I'll just, I'll I'll do it to do it. And I did it. And, and then I started to see how some people were responding. And then I was realizing that there are a lot of people who don't have access to therapy or education or, you know, any kind of support services. And that what they get online is the service. Right. And then when I when I could start seeing it from that perspective, it got really exciting because then it was like, wow, if someone's willing to like be interested to hear what I have to say, they might actually be able to get some benefit from it. So I'll give this a try. And started getting feedback from parents after about two or three months of parents who are like, yeah, I've been watching you and I've been trying some of your stuff. And then they say, I can't believe it. You know, he, my son came over and actually put his head on my shoulder the other day out of nowhere, you know, like stuff like that, where I'm like, oh my gosh. You know, or I got a note the other day from a parent whose child was in treatment for two months. The parent was really, really anxious and nervous about would they be able to rise to the occasion to really be able to be there for their team when they got home from treatment. And through really focusing on improving communication skills, and I guess just watching the videos, she found enough of strength and, and information and she says her, her kid's been home for two months now, is doing great. They have a fantastic relationship. So these are things before people even actually work with me directly to do any coaching. That part is the part that really excites me the most is this stuff that just through a 60 second video, mm-hmm. how much can change? Well, 
And I've been secretly watching you for a while now on TikTok <laughs> because I, I just think it's what the work that you're doing on there is just beautiful because you can tell that when you're communicating with people, it's very raw, it's very honest, it's very straightforward. And responding to when people have a question, you're able to respond back immediately. And being both of us therapists, knowing how important it is to bring education and tools and techniques to this space where people sometimes they're sitting, they're, they ha don't have the resources, but they do have a phone in their hands. And people are starting to learn that they can access quite a lot, quite yes. a lot. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's really amazing. And I think it's a game changer. I really do. <clears throat> In terms of what we can do to help kind of raise the level for everyone in terms of the kind of environments we create for our kids and the extent to which parents can feel supported and heard. You know, like what totally makes my day is when parents respond to a reel I've done and they say, I feel seen. Mm. And that's when I'm like, all right, I did it. Because there are two things. I'm I'm always, I have a team always in mind, right? But there's always the Gen X team in mind too. Mm. Like, because in every parent is their inner Gen X team that is just like salty and pissed off, right? And it's like, what the hell are these people bitching about and whining about and crying about? You know, it's like that real tough inner you know, it's, it's what got everyone to where they are now, that part of them. That part needs to be seen for parents to be able to change. I really believe that. And so that's the other part of what I try to do through my work is mm. to say, okay, if through my videos in 60 seconds, you can see yourself in what I'm describing, then we're getting a little closer to helping you change. Pretty cool. And it's exponential. Mm-hmm. The image I had, and this was this analogy was I heard recently with by Kathy Heller, I think is her name. But it was the idea of sitting at a table and inviting all of the parts of yourself that that are the obtrusive, right? The salty. And also inviting your team to invite those in this analogy to like continue it, to invite all of those pieces that they feel like are getting rejected and shunned. And each person, the parent and the teen sitting together in the same space and realize I, I see the wounded in you. I'm going to accept the fact that that is a part of you. Mm -hmm. And then the teen have the opportunity to realize that their parent isn't a God. Yes. It, they're just human. Like there's a human piece to that. Yes. Yes. You know, it's it's interesting because I don't think that kids ever really fully appreciate how human their parents are. I mean, I'm thinking about my own experience <laughs> with my dad, who's 81. And, you know, so my parents immigrated uh, to the States from Korea separately, and then they met in Chicago and got married, and the rest is history. But it's, you know, my father, I feel, taught me so much about what it takes to succeed as someone as a person of color. And I had a, a conversation with my dad recently and I said, you know, and I, I thought this was gonna be this poignant heartfelt moment, you know, I was like, dad, thank you so much. And I said, you know, like you can hear the music in the background, right? And it just means so much, you, you guided me so much. And he looks at me and says, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and 
And he says, I was just trying to survive. And that blew my mind. I was like, wow. Wow. <laughs> how cool and how, like, whoa. It, it was really, really memorable in a way that I didn't think it would be. Um, mm. And it really highlighted for me that I don't think we can ever truly, truly appreciate how human our parents are until we feel our own humanity and our own parenting in relation to our kids. And so then when my own daughter went through her crisis, I could understand what my father meant when he said, I was just trying to survive. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. What's interesting about that story is that it wasn't, you were still holding certain qualities or perspectives about your father's, um, not biases, but you were holding kind of this idea that didn't align with his own experience. But you you had that lens to see him through that. Even as an adult, we still don't really know. I know. It's crazy. It's really, really amazing. And the other thing is that we are parents for life. For life. And I think there was this real dream that baby boomers had that they got their kids to 18 or at least to, to some career or to college or something. And then that they're, they're good. And then Gen Xers came up and there are some Gen Xers who got their kids to adolescence and they thought, okay, now it's our turn. Now it's our turn to do what the baby boomers did. And now we get to go play golf and do whatever. And, and it, except the work just doubles, triples, because it's so much more complicated now. And the Gen X parents like, what is going on here? You know, like, how is this possibly even fair that this is going on? And so, you know, it's, we are parents for life and we may struggle. What adolescence is, is like a hot minute in a lifetime. And parents think, there's so much we got to teach them by their 18. No, we got time. There's mm. plenty of time. You know, the train keeps going round and around, God willing. And it's, we're going to miss it. We'll catch it the next time around. The lesson is always going to come back around. So if parents can take some of that pressure off, mm. that can be a tremendous, tremendous help. Well, and also going to self-care. But I think that when we feel like our kids, even if it's just the idea of a crisis might happen, I think a lot of parents gravitate towards trying to do the protective thing and neglect a natural pull that of their own personal transformation that is happening and being able to give themselves permission to carve out whatever it is in their own personal life. Because what happens is it becomes a uh, pendulum effect if you if you neglect, neglect, neglect yourself for so long, then that's when we see the like midlife crisis of like, screw my family, I'm out, yeah, now it's yeah, about yeah. me. Yeah. But how, yeah. how do we carve out and also set an amazing example for our kids when we're doing that and put self-care in motion? It is such a building a plane while flying it kind of endeavor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, 
Jenny, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and talking with you. I want you to be able to tell about the project 2.0 that you've got. Yes, yeah. Parenting 2.0, it's a workshop that, yeah. um, so this was designed for folks who may not be able to have the resources to access like intensive coaching, but really need the knowledge piece. And, mm -hmm. and I include four really concrete skills because I want parents to be set up to make radical change in what they do from the moment they get the information. Mm. And so it's a 90 minute workshop. Uh, we take some time to look at the conceptions of what parents imagined they would be as parents, mm -hmm. who they believe they are, who they think their kids think they are. So playing with those ideas, who they swore they would never be as a parent. So playing with some of those ideas, looking at the major transitions that happen the ways the game changes, what are the obstacles that get in the way for parents, and then four really key skills that if parents can focus on those four things, it will transform. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And I'll make sure to have the links in the show notes so everybody yeah. can just a real quick access to connect Absolutely. with you. Oh, cool. Well, one last question. If you were speaking directly to a parent that is in that really kind of scared, frozen, I don't know what to do state that's listening to this, if you could share one thing with them that is the most important from your own experience, what would it be? So I'm imagining that that parent feels like they've already failed, that they've got nothing to offer, and that it's doomed, the situation is doomed. And so my response would be that you are your best asset. You are your team's best asset. The part of you that you think sucks and doesn't know enough that is the part your team needs. The very part that you are apologizing for and feeling guilty about, that's who your team needs. Mm. I love that. Mm -hmm. well, Jenny, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been really great. If you are finding value in these videos or podcasts, it really helps us if you like, share, comment, or even leave a review. This helps the algorithm put episodes like this and many others in front of the people that could really benefit from it. You are all amazing. And if there is a topic you would like to see covered, don't hesitate to reach out in my DMs. Until next time, be the change you want to see in the world.